Well, hi everyone. Welcome back to Game in Hand. I just want to start out with a few keywords. I guess a couple of words. And those words are arbitrary and pointless. The dynamic duo of words that are never more relevant to describe game awards. Having bought a few physical words myself, I can tell you that in the whole situation of game awards, I do feel most game studios do dream of having, I don't know, $90 worth of laser-etched glass to be handed to them, but only the greatest ones will be given it and hastily shuffled off stage, or, you know, not even invited up there, all in the name of ensuring there's enough time to let trailers like LEGO Fortnite get its full time in. God forbid we miss out on being reminded that Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 exists, and you can buy it? Wow, a revelation. It seems Game Awards always are being handed out to those both deserving uh, and those who pander the hardest. And while we wish we could listen to people who are more deserving of it, I don't even feel like there are about the awards anymore, and I don't think I could explain it much better than that. So, for every separate game awards buried in Google search, thanks to, I don't know, Jeff Knightley's TGAs having more ads than The Price is Right, it's a little odd when I went to go take a look at the offerings of game awards, having seen so many of them pop up so early, that basically just make no mention of any other game awards when you search for game awards. Seriously, if you start scrolling, You'll hit those trap websites with just strings of popular words or phrases, and they tend to be more relevant than trying to physically search game awards and trying to find other ones like the golden joysticks. This episode is going to be a little action-packed because what started to be just a handful of categories ended up being categories of my top fives of 2023. Let's bang them out in order. Uh, the first one we'll go through is the five biggest disappointment in game awards. As of the time of writing, which is December 16th, we'll get to my personal top five big boys of 2023, followed by my top five indie games, whose indie qualification is just making sure that the entire game budget looks like it was lower than the marketing costs of a single ad for a AAA game. I'll walk you through my five honorable mentions of notable titles that I just couldn't manage to displace any other title in a top five. We'll go into my list of five games that I kind of regret I didn't pick up or, or buy this year after being able to trial it. And to close off the episode, of course, a little bit of salt, my top five personal disappointments of 2023. This will be a long one, and I have no wrap-up sign in front of me to rush me through it this time. So let's get to the fun. Game Award Big Misses. Uh, I think there's going to be quite a bit that might get left out of my petty hate and absolute negative sentiment for things like best VTuber, uh, eSports best coach, uh, or which eSports game is the best eSports game. And look, I am sympathetic to the cause and making sure that these games and people get the promotion that they deserve but I feel like broadening the awards. But I have some real deep down, let's not call it hate, let's just call it apathy. <laughs> I'm sure those two words don't go together too well. I just don't like that the broadening of awards is including things that aren't video games. 
but video game related titles. I need my video game awards to talk about video games. So let's get my number one out of the way. I, I think I was a little bit too excited to put this down as my number one. Uh, these aren't in any order, these are just my list of disgruntled noises I make every time I see it happen. Starfield was this year's Xbox Game of the Year, according to the Golden Joystick Awards. And listen, there wasn't a lot that I disagreed with for the Golden Joystick Awards as early as they had come out. My absolutely, my absolute agreement with everything that Baldur's Gate 3 got, as I do think Baldur's Gate 3 is a game we don't deserve as a human race, winning almost every category I feel imaginable. But Starfield is the best Xbox game? Come on. I failed to read between the lines when they said best Xbox game and not best game award for largest hyped game from a company that is owned by Microsoft that is also playable on Xbox. Maybe the UK Game Awards should stop ending 2023 at the beginning of November because it sure as hell didn't beat games like Alan Wake, the Resident Evil 4 remake, or, you know, any other title that had some sort of lasting appeal to me. Blasphemous 2, Remnant 2, uh, the list goes on. And Starfield isn't a garbage game, trust me, like I, I see the lasting potential in it. But to me, Starfield is a good dollar per hour game contender and nothing more. Fallout in Space is just not that appealing, and I'm sitting here with 20 hours of gameplay that is physically halted by the promise of FSR 3 coming out soon. You know, after DLSS 3, of course, because why not? They can't do two things at once. And you can quote me on this, because all I want to say is Fallout in Space was not award-worthy this year at all. And the only reason this might ever come back into decent conversation is the fact that it has the greatest mod support on a shitty old engine. Number two on this list, uh, the Game Awards did have some proper variety, but they did have a big miss in my eyes. And that was Cyberpunk 2077 winning best ongoing game. Uh, what a self-serving injustice to actual games as a service titles. And, you know, I know a lot of people don't like games as a service titles, but I don't normally speak out about games as a service because they tend to be a little bit of a gotcha cancer. Loot box casino. But coming from someone who's never wailed but spent a fair share amount of money in Genshin Impact and Honkai Star Rail, I hate that they feel like they broke the mold with a single DLC going back to change just a couple aspects of the game and then calling it an ongoing title. Make no mistake, Cyberpunk 2077 has been, since launch, a solid title. But this is like awarding Best African American Actor to Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. I'd sooner give the title to something with more lasting appeal and constant improvements like Apex. Or you know, include a title that is constantly getting its tires pumped for being the better D4, which is Path of Exile. Those would be my votes even before Cyberpunk even hit the discussion table. Third point on this list was Best VR AR Game. I don't really think you can argue that Resident Evil Village VR mode wasn't the true encapsulation of AAA title plus VR. As much as I hate any opportunity to preemptively shat myself playing a horror game, I think it was very deserving. But uh, there was just mostly a lot of PlayStation VR titles. The miss for me was not including some of the real treats there are 
on Steam for VR experiences. I would have thrown in Vertigo 2 as a title that I feel hangs with the big boys uh, for the adventure that gives you an amazing game for a non-AAA price. And like for sure, if you... A lot of people like Humanity, but Humanity is not a VR selling game. And I mean, let's be real. I wish I could boost I Expect You to Die 3 a little bit higher, but I don't think you'll ever call them a quality caliber VR title compared to uh, Horizon Call of the Mountain or realistically Gran Turismo 7, despite how much they destroyed that game. I think if you played any of the actual AAA titles, you're in for a treat nonetheless. But uh, yeah, the VR list is uh, a pretty small list of really good games. I really wish that would change. I really thought this would be like the onset of like Time Crisis style games, where you know like some arcade titles like Police 911 getting in on the action, but the development backing just never seems to be there. Honestly for VR games every year it's the same, you either get a horror game, a funhouse game, let's maybe next year bring on one of the titles that really sells, you know, those waifu forever alone games that uh seem to always outnumber new VR games two to one. I was gonna say this earlier since it's point number four, and it's less of a game disappointment that I didn't agree with, and more of a shared disappointment that people are talking about, that people were not given their proper time in the spotlight to say their thanks, get everything that they mean to say. Larian Studios finally putting out like a gangbuster game, having, I'm not saying no other title, but nothing that would bring it into mainstream spotlight and just getting wrap it up flashed in their face so that they can scurry off the screens we watch more scripted crap and advertisements like why bring them up on stage at all why don't you just tell everyone who won in advance to pre-script a 30 second thank you talk and then tell me more about the dlc for final fantasy 16. i, I quickly looked up an online article that i don't know if it's absolutely credible but according to this one that listed it out in chronological order for the game show awards, there were 72 game ads or announcements total, which kind of make me think we should have more game categories. What I don't understand is what's the point of giving everyone like 30 seconds to say their piece? You know, last year, the extension of people's speeches allowed people to win Steam Decks, so I mean, like, I think they had the perfect scenario and formula there. But why not just have, like, a schedule where they can do their own stuff if you're worried about airtime, and then just shove two hours of that ad shit after you give the awards? You don't need Anthony Mackie waltzing out on stage and per having forced excitement about games. I swear half of those, like, farces were longer than the people who actually wanted to celebrate their win on stage. It's capitalism at its finest, and it's a shame that the video game awards chills so hard. And lastly, this is something that just kind of hits home. This is something that's very serious to me. It's the mockery of the Golden Joystick Awards Best Gaming Hardware of 2023. If you've seen this, like, stupid list, it's like random PC components. A a keyboard from Asus, of all companies, a, a random Samsung SSD thrown in there, uh, a monitor, which I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, if you actually saw it in person, 
it would probably be the winner if it weren't for the fact that it's just astronomically overpriced. Like that screen is expensive. Then they had a controller that you slot the switch into because Joy-Cons are ergonomic nightmares. And then somehow out of all this, the winner of this garbage selection was PlayStation VR 2, a 750 Canadian dollar accessory that goes with a $650 PS5. And you can use that to play all the five titles that were mentioned this year because that is like the entire library. Unless you just like playing Beat Saber over and over again like most people. And I say this importantly because they absolutely dropped the ball uh, on understanding how big of an impact the handheld APU market invasion has become when it comes to invading the console market. The ROG Ally, the Legion Go, the Steam Deck Go LED, like, I would have physically broken something in my office if the PlayStation Portal even made it on that list. Because starting last year, I mean, the Steam Deck basically killed any interest in me for ever owning a Switch. Once I got my ROG Ally, I couldn't see myself buying an Xbox Series S, Series X, a PS5. And that's even with GTA 6 looming in our future. And honestly, like, even the handful of titles I played this year on the Switch, I also just kind of tested them out on, like, the ROG Ally and the Win 4, and you can absolutely play them at 60fps on a 7640U or 7840U handheld. So if you're asking me what deserved your $750 more this year, I could tell you with a straight face, sadly, it's not the $650 OLED Steam Deck, despite it being everything right in a refreshed model, it's either going to be a split between the base 64 gig uh, OG deck, because I mean, looking here, Canadian prices, you can get it for $350 if you can get a refurbished one, or $430 for a brand new one, or a $600 Canadian open box ROG Ally. Like that's four, that's like mid $400 US territory. And it's shocking and a revelation, but maybe it's just for a specific type of people who understand how well these devices hold up when you start thinking about couch uh, gaming or travel gaming or playing from bed, switch or retro emulation. I'd be hard pressed not to tell you how many times they've taken my time away from my actual computer away from anything else. So to me, the real value winner here is telling you to go out and get a mid product cycle version of any of these game handhelds that are out right now over any PlayStation accessory. I'll tell you that any day as Best Buy fills like their shelves with open box units and try to just like get these things out of the door before they fall out of sales cycle relevancy. The value you get for purchasing a $600 Canadian open box ROG Ally is substantial and I think that value is going to increase exponentially for those who see value in it. Just, you know, don't ever use the micro SD card on the Ally. Be a man, buy a screwdriver, replace the SSD. So let's make a sandwich of positivity instead and move on to my top five games of 2023. These are going to be my, what I'm going to say, AAA bangers. Uh, and then you can grumble about how much my list sucks as much as I've complained about how our other lists have sucked. And then we can just continue to agree to disagree until this farce of a podcast is over. 
So this, this is in proper order. So let's start with number five. Uh, number five for me is a game that I don't think will make a top five for a lot of people uh, because I don't see it as a popular title. It's a JRPG. This bad boy even took my only JRPG title spot that I was going to give this year away from Super Mario RPG Remake. For those of you not noticing, remakes are coming back with a vengeance. Many get the recognition they deserve and the rest are just kind of popular enough to make people decide how to allocate million dollar budgets, whether or not a niche title from the 1990s or maybe early 2000s is worth their time and effort if it's just going to fall into unsuccessful ambiguity. A lot of companies phone in these remakes, and rightfully so, like the GTA Gumby edition, a definitive trilogy, I'm talking to you. So when a title like Star Ocean The Second Story R comes out and shows you everything it has to offer about how to make a visually stunning remake while keeping basically everything of the base game intact, it's hard not to fall in love with it. This game has taken quite a lot of my time away from other titles. And while the game's story holds no surprises to me, to me this is a proper remake that fans should be desperately asking this sort of level of attention and polish to for other JRPGs. I can already tell you right now, people are praying that this level of attention is put towards a Chrono Trigger remake, or let's face it, I'm personally waiting for a Xenogears remake, and maybe they can include all the cut content they left out. Number four is a game, uh, I don't think people expected it to make as big of a splash as it should have, but as another day one purchase for me, I had some hope it would be really good, but maybe just good enough to kill some time prior to Baldur's Gate 3 launching. So when From Software's Armor Core 6 graced my ROG ally and PC, I basically just became fully engrossed with making my mech the bringer of pain, the destroyer of my sanity, and the, quite honestly, the insanity of the plot and the reality that I'd have to play the game at least more than two times to make sure that I saw every ending. I am only on playthrough two uh, after getting the Fires of Raven ending, which I guess it's just the bad ending, and to be honest, I just really, really like the gameplay. I have a habit in games of usually getting to a point, usually it's after I beat it, or sometimes when I'm getting close to beating it, I have a habit of looking up, okay, well, what did I miss out on strategy guides? And seeing that I got the bad ending, I'm basically just engaged to try and go for the, uh, what is it called, the Aliao Acta Est ending? because I want a good ending this game. There could be many more deserving games for your top five, but to me, this is a title that I wouldn't let anyone pass up if you had even the faintest interest in mechs and from software gameplay. Number three on my list is Tears of the Kingdom. I sat for a few minutes trying to figure out how I could be coy with something fun or maybe some words leading up to this, but honestly, with a familiar system and a new engaging tale, I found this game is just kind of like the most time that I've spent on a Switch title this year, uh, and then eventually switching over to Yuzu, because I can't stand my Switch. It certainly divided some opinions when uh, they realized, when we realized we were just getting Breath of the Wild again, but slightly different, and it does kind of straddle the line of new content versus standalone DLC, which I absolutely brutalized Like a Dragon Gate and the Man Without a Name about. But I mean, what can I say? I am a Legend of Zelda simp fanboy. 
of all the open world games I wanted to play this year, this was the only one that kept me coming back. Like I'm 62 hours in now. That's how much I like Tears of the King. It rightfully deserves the praise and recognition. It should be everyone's Nintendo game of the year. My only hope is that we don't see any more developments for new Zelda titles coming out on this current Switch. Number two uh, is a little bit of a, a weird one because I don't know if this one belongs here uh, as when we get to more indie titles you, you might look at this publisher and developer and been like I don't think this is AAA so I really do think I give it a bit more credit I don't know maybe with smaller studios working with big publishers but in retrospect I consider this a title that hits well above its weight Gunfire Games had a bit of a hum and haw first offering when it came to Remnant from the Ashes for me, uh, and I didn't buy it on launch because I didn't have a lot of faith the uh, second title was going to be much better. And I am telling you that I was so wrong about how good Remnant 2 is. It's not going to be for everyone because you have to understand it is a hard game. The moment you go off of like the first difficulty, you will be turned off by this game if you don't like the Souls-like games. But the amount of secrets to discover, the amount of puzzles that there are, the amount of just like hidden things, the amount of hidden puzzles you didn't even know that you were supposed to look for hints for, the innovation of the encounters, uh, I mean like you in go into an encounter where uh, someone, some fat guy at a table tells you to eat rotting food and then you have to defeat hordes of mobs while only being able to heal yourself by eating more disgusting food eating the servants, or eating your own downed co-op friends. This game has like an, a, a, such a big variety of viable weapon choices, uh, abilities to unlock, skills that you can put into your weapons, the ability to unlock different multi-classes, build variety, not being unlimited but being broad enough to warrant multiple playthroughs since you're likely gonna miss encounters and items with only one playthrough. It was only nominated for best action game at the game awards but to me this was the best multiplayer game of 2023 it was not only priced appropriately for better with friends co-op title uh when it was initially sold at 50 dollars us it's on game pass now so there's no reason you can't just pick it up and play it and even then i would tell you to go and buy this game afterwards honestly it's been so much fun it is probably one of the best game purchases I've made this year. And I say that very openly, knowing what I'm talking about as my number one title. Yes, big surprise is Baldur's Gate 3. I bought this game full price in October of 2020, when they first announced that it was coming out. I was so excited after having a blast with Divinity Original Sins 2. And the, uh, the early access was definitely rough, and performance was a bit rocky at first. But after I waited, when the Chapter 1 offering was basically there, and getting about 20 hours into the first act of messing around with classes, doing some quests, I basically stopped playing and I spared myself from any more spoilers until launch. I finished my first playthrough of this game on balanced difficulty, uh, with 176 hours of game time, so Steam running time and in-game 132 hours of game time. I'm going to save my review of Baldur's Gate 3 for uh, maybe Christmas break or the new year, as there's much to talk about, but I'm also confident that I missed the window to put out a 
timely and relevant review of this game three months ago. I absolutely loved everything about this game except near the end on balance mode when I felt I was too OP and some of the larger fights that they basically led you up to and in anticipation basically became an absolute joke. I also feel like I, I did my goody two-shoes run first even though I was an Oathbreaker and I felt like I did my party bad by some of the, let's just say, moral high ground options I chose. I won't spoil it here, uh, but I will talk about my first ending in the next episode. But it's the fact that there were so many paths spoiled, uh, errors in ways that you wouldn't have thought would have mattered, like not having someone in the party when you're solving their story problem. It's so common in AAA games to just have like that person magically show up as if they were traveling with you instead of sticking to like the true situation where they're waiting for you in camp. It's the full brevity of the situation. The empathy that comes from picking companions or maybe you just don't care about your companions. But in the end, it's always the choices you live with by not safe scumming to see what the best result might be or if you can tolerate leaving an option incomplete or a box unopened. I am going to have to play this game again on Honorbound. Uh, it deserves every bit of praise and admiration given to a turn-based quote-unquote computer RPG. I said it before and I'll say it again a million times, people did not get tired of isometric RPGs or CRPGs. People got sick of perpetual milking of series where it no longer became a passion project. It became a return on share decision. And I hope I can say what Larian really wanted to say. S stick to your shit games as a service, AAA publishers. Companies like Larian will provide a service to the gaming community that you could never dream of providing. Baldur's Gate 3 was amazing, and I am excited at whatever Larian has to offer up next, and so should you. So now that we got the big boys out of the way, let's move into top 5 indie titles. The concept of indie <laughs> was a bit questioned this year, now that we know that there are indie farming publishers like Nexon, just kind of like letting smaller groups run with ideas, and then Nexon being like, eh, our property, you can't do anything with it, and basically gets to the point where it's either killed, uh, it makes it big, or becomes entangled in so many lawsuits for trying to make their game a reality that, the, that we have to question how much power people like Nexon have. So for me, it's going to be a title where the developer doesn't have a lot of titles under its belt. It's not just changing its name after negative feedback. And I don't know, it doesn't try to sell itself as a $60 or $70 game. To me, indie titles focus on gameplay over graphics. And I think that sentiment is probably shared by a lot of people. Number five for me uh, is Dredge. And I think this somehow comes from my deep new love for Lovecraftian tugboat games. While I did find the upgrade paths and some of the gameplay pretty lackluster, and spoiler incoming if you want to avoid it, each island or area felt so engrossing and unique with its own terror to encapsulate, uh, but it was the realization for me that when you were bringing things back to the shed and the person who was guiding you and giving you information was just a reflection of you in a mirror, like, oh man, it was such a revelation as you tried to uncover more and more secrets in the game. 
and quite honestly just the storytelling alone was the most gripping aspect of the game. It deserves every bit of recognition and I love how stellar of a title this was. Number four to me is Sea of Stars. Uh, there was a lot going on for this game. Uh, it, I'd also say it had some shaky aspects, so it didn't get as high on this list as I thought it would. It was so easy to reminisce about the similarities to Chrono Trigger, or how this game is like Chrono Trigger meets Super Mario RPG. Or I don't know, maybe not Super Mario RPG, maybe it's like uh, Super Mario was it Superstar Saga on the Game Boy Advance. Either way, I feel like the story was so naive in reflection which was something that was hard to put into words while I was playing the game. The combat was just way too easy, and I felt that there was a lot of forgiveness to boss battles when the gauntlet of regular battles to get to the next campfire would sometimes nearly wipe me out. Uh, I finished the game, and I beat the Fleshomancer to finally put this game to bed, uh, but I did it kind of like, okay, well, I got this far, I might as well finish it. Uh, I don't think I'd give it number one in any category this year, but it definitely stands as the true indie title for this year that deserves to be played. Number three is kind of a weird one, and I have to say this as I went for this as gameplay over graphics. Because look, if you asked me, honestly, there was only one good game published by Bethesda this year, and the praise goes to Tango Gameworks for the massive personality and joy of a game that was Hi-Fi Rush. It is just always sad that it's just never going to outperform other titles. But a lot of people share my sentiment that it was just a joy to play through casually. It came out of nowhere with no announcement, and it made such a lasting impression with its rhythm combat and funny story. There have been other rhythm games out mostly in kind of like shooter form that could maybe stand alongside it, but I give it the full praise that it deserves and full recommendation to play this title. 2023 it should not be passed up. The second spot belongs to Cocoon. There are other titles to consider, but when it comes to puzzles and gameplay that meets Inception level LSD trips, it's hard not to recommend it or at the very least see it in others' charts. Something to love about the you only get one hit focus of mechanics. I loved it so much for the fact that it was a casual game, but at the same time, it's one of those difficulty levels where it's like, casual meets no free rides. And the moment that you fight the first boss with the wheel of spikes that you're like, okay, it's like, I guess I'll just like, jump over it, and then all of the spikes start moving independently, that really makes you think, reminded me why this game needs to be as high on the list as I think it should. While some of the puzzles kind of felt a bit more like filler content. I really enjoyed how much this game made me think, and I kind of put emphasis that I really enjoy games that have make you think content, kind of wrapped up in what is even going on here. So let's talk about my number one game of the year. Uh, I don't think it got the recognition from other game awards uh, or people for what I thought it was worth, but hear me out. There once was a jolly man on vacation. A friend phoned him up who promised him sushi and then guilted him into good buddy slave labor by some guy who owned a boat, forced to dive the seas so that a man by the name of Bancho could be a chef while not having to actually involve himself with any of the trouble that comes from owning a restaurant like, I don't know, hiring staff, sourcing ingredients, enduring 
psychological terrors of diving in the deep ocean, speaking to an ancient race and learning their language, fighting enraged sharks and terrors of the deep, fighting aggressive sharks again, and then most scariest of all, finding a, uh, a neckbeard guy who wants you to play waifu dancing games and also specializes in guns. The jolly man had to invest all of the money that he had earned from the restaurant uh, into fisheries and farms, uh, weapons of mass destruction against all sea life. He was forced to download whatever Instagram and have social interaction with socialite nobodies and the random people who would drop by and just request random shit because they had nothing better to do for three days. Finally, after getting his bearings, he hired some Asian guys to farm for him, trained his staff to work, serve, clean, and acquire the materials that he had to do. He would stand idle during dinners, occasionally picking up tasks, because he finally became the manager that he was capable of being. And then he was told that Dredge was coming, and oh man, shit just got crazy. Dave the Diver won the battle in my heart for fishing-related games with boats. I felt like Dave the Diver fell into repetition too quickly, and I felt like I ran out of things to do in the game way too early. Every time I felt like I had no reason or motivation to return to Dave the Diver, I would just start the game again and play for a couple days. And it stands that I don't need extra reasons to play Dave the Diver, but I am just starving for more content, and the Dredge crossover was a bit of icing on the cake. So, as my number one game indie recommendation, don't skip Dave the Diver. It might not be your game of the year, but it has enough long-lasting appeal to place in my favorite games of this year and maybe this decade. So, in an effort to include more titles while also copping out with a short list of indie titles, I have a short list of games that continue to make my time share. So. There is no order, this is just a list of extra great games. First game to mention is Against the Storm. I didn't think I would enjoy a city builder game after the tragedy that was City Skylines 2, which was just an abomination of failing to optimize a game. But I'd imagine you could sink as much time into this game as I did with half the titles that I mentioned this year. It probably belongs in my indie top five, uh, but to be honest, it was always on my list, but I always feel like I have to be in a mood to play City Builders. And if it weren't for the fact that it just magically appeared on Game Pass midway through December, it's something that's going to basically absorb a lot of my time over the holiday break. I feel like it's one of those games that is just predominantly better with a mouse and keyboard, so maybe avoid the handheld on this one. Uh, second game to mention is War Tales. Something about managing a band of mercenaries it was just something that hit home for me in this game. It doesn't hit in a top 10 kind of way, but I do have about 15 hours into it and it supports co-op. It is another game that really wants you to use a mouse, so I can't recommend using it in uh, handheld or in handheld mode, despite the fact that it definitely runs on the Steam. Third game is uh, Robot Quest. It is a weird mix of FPS somewhere in the neighborhood between Overwatch and games like Gunbound, but I like it. It's chaotic, you have a choice of robots, and hey, <laughs> it's on Game Pass. 
a lot of these games are going to be your reason to pick up at least a 14-day trial of Game Pass. And that is all that I'm going to shill for my remaining list because fourth title on this list was Super Mario Wonder. I found the one shop that I was supposed to go back to to unlock the uh, sound off badge and after getting 100% in the game I just kind of like had some fun. It wasn't going to get much more time out of me uh, but my wife wanted to do a little bit of a playthrough or at least mess around with it so I get to mess around and play with Nabbit or Yoshi instead. Ironic huh? The fifth game on this list is probably going to be my highest. It is too nostalgic not to mention in a top 5 list but it's probably also nostalgic enough that it doesn't make a top 5 list. So it's a little bit of inner reflection on me. You should play Super Mario RPG Remake, but know that there were so many other games that probably deserved your time more than it. I loved every moment, uh, and I've already started a second playthrough, but all I can say is like the game is really short. All I can say is the game has a lot of heart and soul. It introduces so many things to keep you going, to keep you interested, and it, honestly, it is a proper reflection of the caliber of remakes that we've had this year of SNES titles. And I hope we get less Trials of Mana remakes, and more like Star Ocean and Super Mario RPG. This game is great from the bottom of my heart, just maybe wait for it to go on sale, I say, as I know Nintendo is probably going to make it $20 off in 2030. So it's going to be a little bit of a weird thing because I think there's going to be a lot of games on this list that people would probably throw in their top five. My problem is I made my top five list based on games that I actually got to play. So these are the games that I am looking forward to playing or I might have just dabbled in them and couldn't give it a strong enough recommendation to make them a top five. The first one is uh, Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2 basically just slipped my interest this year, not because it's a bad game, but honestly it was just way too similar looking to the original, and I never beat the original that I played on PlayStation, even though I rebought it on PC trying to get through it. To me, it was kind of weird because it became way too repetitive, and let's be real, I don't have a PlayStation 5, so I'm going to be waiting until this thing shows up on Steam or Epic Game Store or whatever, because who knows? It's definitely a game that I'll probably have interest in at some point, uh, but having a significant cost be the factor, I just find the stories to be so bleh. Alan Wake 2 is the second title on this list. Uh, Alan Wake 2, I'm legit convinced, will become uh, an Xbox Game Pass title, as to be honest, if it were up to me, I'd tell you it's probably the only real outstanding Xbox title that came out this year, the downside of it being is you can't buy it on Steam. Again, I want to say this with utmost emphasis, I don't mind buying games on Epic Game Store. I buy a lot of Square Enix titles just because they never seem to come out on anywhere but the Epic Game Store platform. But as someone who doesn't own a current gen console and likes having cloud saves between my handheld and my PC, I don't mind waiting for a sale or Game Pass on this one. And as we speak, I think the Epic Game Store has like uh, a stacking coupon of 30% off plus 20% off, so you can get Alan Wake 2 for like 38 bucks Canadian. I may just fold. Returnal came out super early in the year, and it's definitely a game that I considered getting as I kind of like the whole core gameplay loop, and a lot of 
initial outlets were starting to use Returnal as a uh, basis for benchmarking games, but it has a lot of problems, and I think it was because at the time, Returnal's reviews weren't completely positive, uh, and the fact that I was probably between graphics card repairs, buying this game just never materialized. Lies of P, I flip-flopped on, because as the fourth title on this list, I think it deserves a mention now that I've had a chance to watch a few streams of people playing it, and then finally installing it and just getting my feet wet. It does seem like it's a really fun game. The only reason I hesitate to become fully involved in games like this uh, is the fact that I have a toddler who desires constant attention. But for anyone else who hasn't tried it, please, chill number 473, give it a chance on Game Pass. Because I have it on Game Pass, it's less of an if and more of a when I have time to play it. But now that I've got Baldur's Gate off my shoulders and it's being moved into more of a casual replay scenario, uh, I have it installed and I definitely think I'm going to give it a shot over the holidays. Last but hopefully not surprising for anyone, I know I kind of dunked on it for being a, an award for awards sake because I don't know why it qualified to get that award, but in all honesty I think Phantom Liberty is probably going to be a solid expansion to buy for Cyberpunk. I think it gets a lot of media attention and people are just like getting the knee pads out for anything CD Projekt Red has to offer. Because look, it's like it can't, with this expansion came a lot of big changes for Cyberpunk 2077, both in major aspects of the game, uh, but they also revamped the performance is just really in that odd time because I think it is absolutely a game that I want to go back and replay as soon as AMD frame gen comes out for it. It's on a list of games where I don't understand why my 3900X CPU is suddenly like a decade old technology that isn't suitable for games. I guess it wasn't like the best at games to begin with, but I've been kicking this can hoping to get FSR 3.0 on multiple titles now, and in the last week I think they finally opened up the source code for FSR 3 so that people can implement it. So I mean, whatever. I've waited this long, what's another 6 to uh, 20 months of waiting? So we've, got, we've gone through quite a few, but this is going to be the list that closes up the episode. It is. My favorite thing to do, my public shaming of five titles for this year. Yes, there was a lot of positivity between two slices of disappointment. Everyone here on this list deserves everything that's said about them for nothing short of absolute garbage charged at full price. The first game on this list is The Day Before. I don't think you need to know too much about it just because the coverage for this game has been very large and uh, kind of depressing for how much of an asset dump and scam this was. And I, I imagine that there's probably a backstory that maybe gives them a bit of credibility to the insane actions that they've done. But I mean, like, the studio announced it closed a week after launch. It said it closed a week after launch and basically just re-changed its name. So I don't know if you can say that the game is anything more than just kind of like a next level scam. And all the, oh boo hoo, please don't make fun of us. This was a really hard five years of effort. What, the the lawsuits for not, for, for your game name? 
Like, I don't even know what to say. It feels like it was just complete disingenuine farce. Everything they said was just an upkeep of the farce. The day before is titled as such because that was when you were supposed to initiate a refund for this game. Peak interest in this game started and ended with the tech trailer. Rightfully so, the game is just ass. It's just exactly what you saw literally and figuratively in the trailer. It's depressing that 100,000 people bought this title, even when at least half those people requested a refund. The game can no longer be bought on Steam, and I imagine that everyone who wants a refund is going to get a, a refund. There is no MMO aspect to this. They said there was going to be PvP. Like, my god, I hope everyone gets their money back. Second game on this list is Redfall. Take all of the interest, uh, a co-op vampire hunting game from a studio that used to put out semi-decent titles like Prey and Dishonored. And while I think maybe Deathloop was questionable, it was still a very redeeming game. Redfall though was like absolute garbage. It's a complete departure from anything that would even be a AAA studio quality. While the most recent patch notes seems to make it bode a little more well, at least according to the strongest supporters of this like garbage game, all they can really hope is that they keep making substantial progress in a game that should have been launched in a presentable state. It falls under the category of I still can't believe publishers are re releasing games in this kind of a state, and it's been a very whatever, we can fix it post-launch BS, let's just get this shit out and make money. That makes me glad that it hit Game Pass, and I got to try it through you know, Game Pass Roulette because I would have never paid for it otherwise. It's one of those titles that you'll probably find interesting because Xbox has to pay these publishers to release their games on Xbox Game Pass. And I really, really, really hope they didn't put a lot of value in Redfall. Th the third shame goes to, I'm going to call it a launch because, I mean, technically it is. It's, it's a cross-platform launch. Because Blizzard brought Diablo 4 and Overwatch 2 to Steam. Okay, fine, there's probably not a really strong argument to call this a 2023 game. But I just want to say that I still can't understand why the drama behind Overwatch 2 makes anybody play this game. Like, how gullible are people who basically go from the first game with everything to the second game, but you have to do everything over again? You know, you can buy the characters now. Uh, and the skins. And what about the old skins? Oh, don't worry about it. They're now permanently locked behind paid chests. But, you know, no, we can't bring out a single player campaign because a boo-hoo-hoo. It would have taken time and effort and we didn't do it. A boo-hoo-hoo-hoo. It is just so, like, gratefully so that it has a 15% review rating. And surprise, surprise, you can't refund any of the purchases that you make on Steam for the DLC, but I mean like, you always have to remember that the number of reviews for a game, even if it's for free to play, usually indicates the size of like the gaming community for the game. And you can tell there's just gonna be a bunch of idiots who are still buying this crap. So please, let me continue to be an echo chamber for the amount of Blizzard discontent the community has. Fourth shame on this list goes to Payday 3. And look, it is one thing to come out with a new title 
that might have a little bit of a rocky launch. Yes, the title looks better. It might fix old problems that play the older series. It's another thing to just like barely deviate from the original concept and make it feel like it's a downgrade from Payday 2. What really pisses me off though is the game is being released in a terrible state. Not even like the, the three days, uh oh, our matchmaking service isn't working, but we threw them under the bus so everything is okay. They were going on to state that, okay, well, you know what? I think I'm going to implement offline aspects for this game three days after the unplayable matchmaking just to turn around and be like, oh no, yeah, we're not working on an offline mode. And look, I get it. I understand why offline modes don't work for games with a lot of purchases, uh, unlockables, multiplayer, I get it. Cheating is still rampant in Payday 2, and you need microtransactions, and everyone needs to be microtransactioned equally. I understand. But I hate the fact that they just sell you an empty game intentionally, and still have bugs like clipping through the truck in one of the very first missions because players aren't told to hold crouch the entire time after they've jumped inside of a truck. It's a disappointment. I uninstalled the game after basically three sessions and I realized that after Payday 2, despite how much I like Payday 2, Payday 3 is just part of a game cycle that I don't want to be a part of. Last but Certainly not the least. I think you all know who is coming. Uh, maybe who gets this turd trophy. And while it's not a Days Gone, it is not a 15% Overwatch 2. There are a number of games that would definitely rank lower, be lower rated, be practically vaporware. They might not be worse than companies who put out uh, in-game engine videos after launching a game eight years ago and instantly sunk cost fallacy tells gamers brains to insert another 35 million dollars into star citizen level of low no i don't think it's worse than that but really like to me it's the reality that diablo 4 is the most inept game that gets such high casual merit just for the fact that it's a stable ARPG with no game-breaking flaws. But I, d I don't know why, after all this time, after playing for three seasons, I have such long-lasting resentment towards people who still find appeal in Diablo 4. Like, the appeal for Diablo 4 from me is gone. You wait six months for a game to go in a direction that they say it's going to go in, and then they just, like, shit the bed by rehashing old content. You can see just like the enthusiasm drain from those like whatever campside fire chats or whatever the hell they call them. Because I think there are certain people who get it. Because I imagine, but the downside to this game is I imagine that we're like eight years deep into a development cycle where most of the original team is no longer there. Like they, they keep coming out with these very like poignant uh, campfire chats. They understand, they're ready to make changes. And then they just go and like flex tape a problem because there's a hole in their dull metal boat. I feel like for the two seasons and launch that I've played, it is basically all that I can stomach of this game. I'm gonna questionably say I got my money's worth for the amount of hour for the amount of hours that I've put into this game. But honestly, what I did is I supported the wrong game. I should have spent a hundred dollars on like anything else. I should have spent a hundred dollars on 
giving myself an extra whatever five months on Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, or who knows, spend a hundred dollars on cosmetics and Path of Exile, or just add funds to my Steam account so that I can be ready to support Path of Exile 2, which looks like it's going to be better in every single aspect. Because for every moment that I griped about Diablo 4 being like an absolute soulless grind, I just went back to Path of Exile in comfort, you know, knowing in the fact that there was always something more to accomplish, uh, a better variety of things to do. Path of Exile is never going to be casual friendly, but at least it rewards your diligence. In Diablo 4, you were rewarded for getting one unique that forced your build to completely change, and it always feels like the gameplay is balanced around streamers and their meta builds, and not just rewarding everyone for being able to play the game how they want. Like, it goes beyond hand-holding in the game. Classes are not treated equally, every skill is not viable, and the most important part, the pacing of the endgame grind makes me wish I didn't enjoy playing as much as I did. I'm already livid that they've announced a paid DLC for the game while it's sitting in the state, and all you can see is people just reminiscing about, hey, well, do you remember how much of a better game Reapers of Souls was once they walked back everything that they had about the game that we hated at launch? And you go, yeah, but why do you have to spend $160 to get to that point? and then send out surveys asking whether they should spend $60 or $100 to get it. Diablo 4 is the prime example of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I am just hoping once Bobby Kotick is kicked out and Microsoft has like full reins that they just clean house and start hiring back people who are actually enthusiastic about making these games rather than having some sort of downgrade from free-to-play game being put through a launcher nobody wants to use. Diablo 4 could have been so much, but it's going to be a game where you're waiting two DLCs in order to see some value for it. And honestly, it's the fact that it was basically 50% off. It's being sold for $20 with consoles that they're just praying that people are buying the battle pass. So that's it. And that's the end of the episode. We can bask in all of the, the greatness, all of the fun games that we can play, and certainly 2023 was definitely a year of great games. The problem is, is just like, there are always going to be certain titles that just kind of leave a salty taste in my mouth. And we're not just talking about my biggest disappointments of 2023. The moral of my story for all of this is just, the next time you figure you want to support a midding of a game that a AAA company thinks that they could pawn off on you for $70 US, I could come back and list at least three to four indie titles that you could have bought with that money, with D4 money, and get way more value for your time. I just want to make sure that people understand that we should be focusing on your value of time. And I get it. There's going to be people who listen to this podcast and argue that I'm being too unfair, and a lot of what I'm saying is maybe too unjust. A lot of people are going to enjoy Diablo 4 just for the fact that it's a casual fun game. That's great. If you want to spend 40 hours leveling casually on console, getting to level 60, and then go do something else, be productive in your life, that's fine. But we're in the long stretch of half-assed games. And for a matter of fact, the half-assed games that Blizzard has released or 
or re-released. I can only stay so fake optimistic for so long. Make sure at the very least you check out all of the indie titles and the extra titles that maybe didn't make the top 5 AAA titles for this year. But that's it. Holidays are coming around so I'm getting this out early. It's time to get drunk, spend some time with my family, and take in some holiday cheer. I'm going to catch up with you guys probably in the new year of 2024. So to everyone else, happy end to 2023 for everyone. I hope the epic giveaways this year are plentiful and the Steam sales are good to balance out our libraries. My name is Dan. Happy gaming, everyone, and I'll see you in the next year.